So Revelation, how many of you have been tuning in to watch any of the series on Revelation? You, you getting something out of it? Is it helpful? Just so you know, if you're in the room and you're wearing a mask, you can still talk back. It's all right. The mask does not prevent vocal cords. So I know it's weird. How many of you still feel totally weird with the masks on and everything, right? Everybody keeps talking about the new normal. This doesn't feel normal to me. I don't like it. I'm not into it. I hate it. And I just want to go on record by saying that. And... um. I think everybody else feels the same way. So uh, so here's what I want to do. What, what I realize is that if I keep going chapter by chapter through the book of Revelation, we're going to be in the book of Revelation for half a year. So, um, so I, want to, I want to start to consolidate a little bit, and I'm going to figure out a little more what that looks like over the next couple of weeks. But today I'm going to cover two chapters, uh, Revelation chapter 8 and 9. And last week, we talked about the 144,000. We talked about the great revival that was going to happen during the time of the tribulation. And, um, and so today, we're going to, that was kind of like a reprieve. It was like, the book of Revelation is set up so it's got judgment, wrath, judgment, wrath, and then a little reprieve, and then judgment, wrath, judgment, wrath, and then a little reprieve, and then more judgment and wrath, and then the big final ending where we all go, yay, this is great, right? So I just want to warn you, this is Judgment Wrath, Judgment Wrath Week, okay? So um, buckle up, get your antacids, because this is, uh, this is some tough stuff. So um, this week, we are, we are starting with Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, and I'm just going to start reading, and we're going to kind of go through some hunks of this and, uh, and talk about it as we go. So Revelation 8, 1 says, When the Lamb broke the seventh seal on the scroll, there was silence throughout heaven for about half an hour. Now, I've heard some preachers use this to make the case that there won't be any women in heaven. Um, but I don't believe that's true. That's bad theology. <laughs> Get it? There's silence in heaven for <clears throat> you guys. If you're on loud, if you're online watching, the people in the room are not laughing, but that was really funny. And you just put a laughing emoji or a heart emoji. That was really, really quality humor, and nobody was. Man. Let's close in prayer. No, I'm just kidding. See, you laughed more then. That was kind of a hopeful laugh even. It was like, oh, maybe he is. I don't know. All right, so here we go. So as we look at this idea of silence in heaven, silence can communicate a lot, right? Um, if If you've ever received either when you were a kid from your parents and your parents were just quiet when you knew something, you did something wrong, that was the worst, right? You'd rather just get yelled at than have your parents just like be quiet and you're sitting there. Mom, it's okay. Am I going to get to live through this? You know, you just, you want to know something. So when silence is happening, there's this sense that, oh man, this is a big deal. If there's silence in heaven, because we go through these throne room uh, um, scenes where there's rejoicing and shouting and worship, and then there's silence. That means that what's fixing to happen is going to be something that inspires awe. It's, it's crazy. So we've gone through the six of the seven seal judgments, and now we're on the seventh seal. And it says here in verse 2, I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and they were given seven trumpets. 
So what is the, 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 the seventh seal is actually opening seven more judgments. So when he opens the seventh seal, when the lamb opens the seventh seal, instead of a specific judgment or a specific wrath, he's actually opening up seven more. So you get to the seventh and you're like, okay, this is going to be complete because remember in scripture, seven represents completion. And so when you get to seven, you think, okay, well, this is going to be complete. Well, it's, it's complete, but it's complete in opening another seven wraths. Seven more judgments are coming, and these are called the seven trumpet judgments. And, and um, when, we, when we look at this, uh, and let me kind of go back to, to, to verse one, because this idea of silence, and I don't think I spoke to this enough, because I don't fully understand why heaven goes quiet for half an hour. When you think about eternity, a half an hour doesn't seem like a long time, right? And you think this is an eternal scene. What's the significance for the half an hour of silence? I don't really know other than it, it, it just signifies how significant the opening of this seventh seal is. And, um, and I think, though, that there's a lot of things as you read through Revelation, and I'll, I'll just be straight with you guys. I don't have all the answers to the book of Revelation. And if you ever sit down and listen to anybody that says that they do, just click it off, shut them down, because they don't. We don't. There's no way that you can know the mystery of God. As a matter of fact, Revelation 10 is all about the mystery of God, explaining the mystery of God. And so there's this sense in which we don't understand. But the beauty of the book of Revelation is that it's about the the revealing of Jesus Christ. And so you're supposed to dig. One of the reasons why God makes himself mysterious is to get you to dig because part of the beauty of digging is that you get revelation, you get new experiences, you get also the process of digging. Don't don't get lazy. A.W. Tozer talks about how people have gotten lazy about digging into scripture for themselves. And they found they find teachers that they like and they just sit and listen to the teachers that they like instead of digging in and discovering God and, and getting a revelation of God for themselves. I want to encourage you. I want you to listen to my sermons. I want you to listen to the podcasts. I want you, all of that stuff. But I, more importantly, I want you to learn how to dig on your own because you will get a revelation of Jesus that will make him come alive to you personally, okay? I'm, there are a lot of denominations that are built around telling people, don't read your Bible. You need somebody to interpret it for you. We're not that denomination. We're not that church. I want you to dig in. I want you to get the truth. If you find something that I'm saying that's out of line with scripture, please tell me because I don't, I'm not trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. I want you to dig. I love the passage of scripture in Proverbs 25 too. It says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. So God gains glory by kind of making himself hidden. Why? Because the rest of that passage says, it's the glory of kings to search out a matter. So it brings God glory when we search out and we dig in and we reveal Christ, right? So here we go. Now we'll go to verse uh, three through five. And I've talked about this passage 
on our prayer meeting nights a few times, but I want to read it and I want to reiterate it on a Sunday morning because some of you may not have heard this, but this is a powerful picture. It says, then another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar. Now, here's a little difference because in the Old Testament, when priests offered incense before God, they used bronze incense burners. They used bronze censers. Bronze was a, a, a symbol of judgment and wrath. And so they were bringing this bronze censer into the presence of God to kind of stop the wrath of God. Well, gold is a sign of perfection and purity. And so in this picture in Revelation, when the, when the, when the incense is offered, it's a perfect incense. It's a, it's a complete incense. It's a holy incense offered in the throne room of God. So there's no wrath in the throne room of God. There is perfection, there's purity, there's holiness. And so here he is offering this incense with a gold incense burner and stood at the altar and a great amount of incense was given to him to mix with the prayers of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. Then the angel filled the incense burner. Now I want you to get this picture because this is so cool. When you pray, your prayers don't just stop in the room where you're praying. Your prayers seep out through the roof. They, they, they travel through space and time and they enter the actual physical throne room of God. And so your prayers go up into the throne room of God. And the Bible says our prayers are like a a sweet-smelling aroma. They're like an incense in the presence of God. So if you can picture this, I often picture when we pray that it's like light shooting out. And that that light is different colors expressing from different people the uniqueness of our prayer. And so if you can imagine a room like this filled with the prayer of people and a different beam of light coming out of each person and as they mix together and kind of mingle together and move toward heaven and they enter the throne room of God and they mix with the, the cloud of smoke from the incense of heaven and that I love the effect that we get when we have the haze machine and the light's kind of shooting through the haze machine. And it's, can you imagine the prayers of God's people dancing in the throne room with the majesty of God being reflected from his throne mixed with the smoke of the incense of heaven as people are before God and the angels are before God. And it's just this amazing light show as our prayers mix together in the throne room of heaven. You get this picture? Now check this out. It says, then the angel filled the incense burner with fire from the altar. So, so imagine the, the angel just scooping the incense burner filled with fire from heaven. And now you've got this, this little gold globe incense burner that's filled with fire just pouring out of it. And it says, and he threw it down upon the earth and thunder crashed and lightning flashed and there was a terrible earthquake. So if you can imagine this scene as, as this, this censer is filled and thrown as a response to the prayers of the saints. When you pray, your prayer makes a difference. 
It's not something that you just do as a good luck charm. It's not something you just do to kind of make yourself feel better. Your prayers mix with the incense of heaven and the coals of the fire of the altar of heaven, and God physically responds with an answer. I love that picture. Man, if that doesn't make you want to pray, I don't know what will, but God is moving when we pray. And the Bible says that there was a physical difference made on earth in response to the prayers. Now, as we look here in in verse 6, it says, Then the seven angels with the seven trumpets prepared to blow their mighty blasts. The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down on the earth. One-third of the earth was set on fire. One-third of the trees were burned, and all the green grass was burned. Sounds pleasant, doesn't it? So if you can imagine this scene as the first angel blows his trumpet, and unleashes the wrath of God. Remember, why does the wrath of God come during the tribulation period? Why is it happening? Because God is giving hell on earth so you don't have to experience hell in hell. Because the tribulation is a temporary seven-year period. Hell is forever and ever and ever and ever. And so if if you think about this, God's wrath is actually God's grace because God is trying to do whatever he can to motivate people to shift their hearts so that they don't have to experience hell and hell. And so he says, hey, in order to get you to move your heart, I'm going to do whatever is necessary. So I'm going to bring hail and I'm going to bring fire mixed with blood, and it's going to coat the the earth, and one-third of the earth will be set on fire, and one-third of the trees will be burned, and all the green grass will be burned. Wow. This is serious. Now let's read on, verse 8. Then the second angel blew his trumpet, and a great mountain of fire was thrown into the sea. One-third of the water in the sea became blood. One-third of all things living in the sea died, and one-third of all the ships on the sea were destroyed. Many people think back, um, I don't know if you remember, of, I think it was around mid-'80s, and then I think there was another incident, um, mid-2000s, maybe uh, around 2008 or so, where an asteroid from the asteroid belt came perilously close to earth. The one that was a few years ago, they said was about the size of a bus. Um, the one before that they said was, uh, was the size of a, like, a, like the statue of Liberty. It was a, a big old joker. And they said that if it were to hit the earth, if it were to come into the gravitational pull of the earth, that it would cause significant damage. If it were to hit the ocean, it would create tsunamis that would destroy fleets of ships and that it would, would create all kinds of problems. It sounds a lot like what we just read in Revelation, uh, Revelation 8, and, 8 and 9, doesn't it? Think about this massive meteor. It says, uh, a great mountain of fire. What do meteorites look like when they enter the Earth's atmosphere? It's this streaking, burning fire, right? So can you imagine a giant asteroid coming into Earth's atmosphere looking like a giant mountain of fire? 
hitting the earth, creating a tsunami, destroying ships. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Now, let's read on verse 10. It says, Then the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from the sky, burning like a torch. It fell on one-third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star was bitterness. Your version may say wormwood. It made one-third of the water bitter, and many people died from drinking the bitter water. And so what is, uh, what is this possibly in, in 10 and 11 here? I believe this speaks very much of nuclear war. I think this sounds like a nuclear attack. And, and there are a few reasons that I think that. One, the star, the idea of this, this nuclear warhead coming through. Um, it says it makes the water undrinkable. It poisons the water. Uh, nuclear radiation, of course, uh, poisons the water. If you guys remember um, hearing about, some of you are old enough to remember when it happened. I remember when it happened. But how many of you remember Chernobyl? Um, and it poisoned the water, poisoned the, the groundwater and everything. You want to know something interesting? The word Chernobyl, if you were to be reading a, a, a Russian Bible right now, when you get to the word that's wormwood, that same word wormwood, if you're reading in Russian, is Chernobyl. Isn't that interesting? Sure, it's just a coincidence. I doubt it has anything to do with actual events that will happen. And so, um, again, I believe that this is uh, an actual prophecy of what is to come, and I believe that there will be a nuclear war as a part of the tribulation period. Okay, verse 12 now. It says, Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and one-third of the sun was struck, and one-third of the moon, and one-third of the stars, and they became dark, and one-third of the day was dark, and also one-third of the night. What could this be? I don't know. It could be anything. It's, it's all, all of these things are speculation because it's symbolism, right? But there are ways in which it happens. You know, we've, we've read about... Um, the earthquakes that happen as a part of the sixth seal judgment. I believe that a part of the, the, the trumpet judgments could be um, a, a volcano like Yellowstone's volcano could erupt, a super volcano blocking out a third of the sun, right? And, and it could cause a, a, a winter type experience all over the world because it blocks out a portion of the sun's light. And so there's all kinds of things that could have happened here. Um, but we see that th- this is not only... Uh, uh, plausible, but man, it looks to be coming sooner and sooner, doesn't it? Based on what we're seeing happen. You know, Jesus talks in Matthew 24 and 25 about how the earth will go through birth pains leading up to the return of Christ and the great tribulation and that things will get worse and things will get more difficult. And, and it's as if the, the birth pains of earth begin to happen as the earth is, is laboring prior to the return of Christ. Now, let's read verse 13. It says, Then I looked and I heard a single eagle crying loudly as it flew through the air. Terror, terror, terror. Your Bible may say, Woe, woe, woe to all who belong to this world because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpet. So you have this eagle. The eagle is kind of a harbinger of what's to come because he has three woes or three terrors that he speaks about, right? How many trumpet judgments are left? We've got three coming, right? So he says, 
Whoa, whoa, whoa. You thought the last four were bad. Guess what? The next three are going to be even worse because now we're going to move out of the natural kind of realm into the supernatural realm. And what we see happen on these next three trumpets becomes a very supernatural event. And we'll read about that in Revelation 9. And um, verse 1 and 2, let's look at this. It says, Then the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star that had fallen to earth from the sky, and he was given the key to the, to the shaft of the bottomless pit. When he opened it, smoke poured out as though from a huge furnace, and the sunlight and air turned dark from the smoke. Now, I want to I talk about this for just a second. And matter of fact, I'm going to read just a little bit more, and then I'll talk about I'll talk about it kind of together. Uh, verse three, it says, then locusts came from the smoke and descended on the earth and they were given power to sting like scorpions. They were told not to harm the grass or plants or trees, but only the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Remember, people with the mark of the beast get access to food and provisions and all of those things. People with the mark of the lamb get protected. We know the 144,000 will have the mark of the lamb. Most scholars believe that people that come to Christ after after, after that, also get marked by the lamb. And we see here that they're protected from these scorpion demons that kind of come out, these locust scorpion demon things. And so they were told not to kill them, but to torture them for five months with pain, like the pain of a scorpion sting. In those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. The locusts look like horses prepared for battle. They had what looked like gold crowns on their heads and their faces looked like human faces. They had hair like women's hair and teeth like the teeth of a lion. They wore armor made of iron and their wings roared like an army of chariots rushing into battle. They had tails that stung like scorpions. And for five months, they had the power to torment people. Their king is the angel from the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek, Apollyon, the destroyer. The first terror is past, but look, two more terrors are coming. So that's heavy. That's a lot, right? Um, again, there is some disagreement among many people about will the church be around during this period? Some people say that you know, the church is going to be around for the entirety of the tribulation and that the church is going to go through all of this stuff. I don't believe that to be true. Um, it doesn't line up. I don't believe with what is written in, in 1 Thessalonians 5 where, where it says that man, the church is not appointed for wrath. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 3, we read that the churches will join Christ and then after that, we don't read any more about the church during the entire tribulation period that is written about in the book of Revelation not one time is church mentioned. The word that, that is used for the church throughout scripture is not mentioned the entire tribulation period in Revelation. And, and so because man is not appointed for wrath, Christians are not appointed for wrath, I believe that we will be gone. I believe that since the Bible doesn't speak about the church during the tribulation, I believe that we'll be in heaven with Christ enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I believe that this is the opportunity for God to pour out his wrath. Remember, there's persecution that comes from people. There's persecution that comes from life circumstances, right? There's persecution that comes as a result of sin. But there's a difference between persecution that happens and wrath that is from God assigned to people. And God is 
God has given us Jesus to save us from wrath, right? That's the point. That's one of the points of salvation. So remember, as we're reading this, I believe that we're gone. We're not even here. I believe this is going to be a powerful time for, for believers in Jesus to be enjoying. So what is, what is going on here on this, uh, this fifth seal as it's, as it's opened up? So I believe that there, Scripture gives a, a good case. The word here that's using, used for the, the bottomless pit here is the abusos, the, the abyss. And um, if you think about Kind of, if you think about the physical space that we inhabit, right? You, you wouldn't, if somebody asked you where you live, you wouldn't say, I live in the world, right? It's pretty general. So, so when, when we think of the, the world that we don't see, we tend to think of it as just the unseen world, right? Because we don't know a ton about it and we haven't studied it a ton. But the scripture gives us some pretty good indications about some different specific places. You know, if you were to look at, for us, you know, we live in the United States of America. We live in Baltimore, Maryland. There's, there's some places that we can specifically narrow down to the seen world. Well, the unseen world is very much the same. There are different places. There's heaven. There's the abyss. There's the bottomless pit. There's, there's these different places. There's Abraham's bosom. You know, we read about these different locations, and each location has a specific purpose. The abusos, the abyss, the bottomless pit, was, was set aside by God as a holding place for demons who were extremely bad. Matter of fact, 1 Peter talks about it, and 1 Peter 3.19 talks about spirits that are in prison, okay? So there are these demons that are in prison right now. Matter of fact, Real quick, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this. This is a fascinating study to me, and I've given a lot of time to studying this particular thing. But I'm going to break it down just a little bit, and then we're going to move on. But there's something fascinating that happens here. If you read Jude, don't look for a chapter because Jude is only one chapter. But Jude, verse 6, I remember the, when I was a teenager, uh, a pastor preaching, and he said, turn to Jude 9. And I was like, Hey, what you got? I only got one Jude. I, re- I just remember how confused. I missed probably half the sermon because I was looking for Jude chapter 9. The entire I didn't want that to happen to you. So it's Jude, okay? And there's verse 6. Listen to what this says. This is so fascinating. He says, this is Jude. Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. He says, and I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority, God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. So this is Jude reminding people of something they already know, right? This is new information for us. We we didn't really hear this. We hadn't been sitting in the synagogues listening to them teach about this. And so this is new information. So we're reading about it. We're like, oh, Jude, I, I missed that. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? And so this is what he says. He says, God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbor town and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Now, here's something that's interesting. We believe when something is mentioned in a, 
a thought is mentioned in conjunction with another thought, we believe that they connect in Scripture. That's most often the case. They think about the way that we speak. When we speak, we don't tend to jump topic to topic, right? We tend to, to speak, and we hang around a subject. And that's what Jude is doing here. So when he's talking about the judgment that was put on these demons, um, he also brings up sexual perversion. And we believe, most people that have studied this believe that this is a part of what happened with the angel or the the demons that called the sons of God, but it was, it was demons in Genesis. And if you're not real familiar, there's this section in Genesis chapter six, uh, verses one through eight, where it's this really strange story. And as you're reading it, you're like, what? That sounds weird, right? I encourage you make a note Go home and read this, Genesis 6, 1 through 8. It's this story about how these, the Bible will say, the sons of men came and, and uh, mixed with the daughters of man. It's a mixed company. And so, um, so as they, they mixed with the daughters of man, what happens is there is a, a, a race of people that are born called the Nephilim. And they're called the giants. And so you've heard the story of like David and Goliath, right? David, Goliath would have been a Nephilim. He would have been a part of this, this race. And so, so what happens is most people believe that, that have studied this, that Satan was trying in doing this to create a race of people that were unredeemable. Because if he can create a race of people that can't be redeemed, then he can thwart the plan of God. And that's Satan's goal from the very beginning is to thwart the plan of God, right? Because when, when Adam and Eve are placed in the Garden of Eden, right, God says, you got one choice, one choice. Love me or you go after the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You got a choice, though, because I want you to love me and I want it to be for realsies. I don't want anything that's fake. I want, I want you to be able to choose to love me, right? And so, so God gives them the choice. And what does Satan do? He comes in and, and makes it difficult for them through temptation to avoid embracing sin. And so he thinks, man, I've thwarted the plan of God. And God says, okay, well, guess what? I'm going to bring a curse, but check it out. In the curse, there's also a promise. In the curse, there's a promise because you will, you will, your seed will bruise the head of the serpent. And so, so Satan's like, oh man, now there's an answer, right? So he says, well, I'm going to create a different seed then. I'm going to create a different offspring. And, and actually what he does, even if you go back a little bit further, you go to Cain and Abel. Abel is the righteous son. What does Satan try to do? He tries to kill the seed of Eve, right? Because he doesn't want his head bruised. And so you have the first murder in scripture. And now jump forward to Genesis 6 and you have this, this account where it seems like Satan's trying to create this irredeemable race of people that will, that will somehow thwart the plan of God. But what happens, none of these people ask for forgiveness. None of these people try to come on board the ark. And so they're entirely wiped out. And then you move on. So as we go through this, we see now, how um, Jude 6 and then 2 Peter 2 talk about how these angels, and we believe that it's this same group of angels or demons that are incarcerated in the abusos. And so they get thrown in there. Now I'm going to move on because I know this is getting deep in the weeds and I just, uh, but it's fascinating. And as we look at this, but if you think about this, guys, these are the worst of the worst of the demon powers. 
And so what happens is now this star or stars are spoken of in context with angels. Lucifer, when he was thrown out of heaven, it says the, the morning star fell from heaven, right? And so as you go through scripture, stars are a lot of times equi- uh, equated with angels. Even in the first part of Revelation 2 and 3, we read the stars of the churches are angels. So there's this star that falls, and he's given a key to unlock the abusos. And so he goes and he unlocks the abusos, and, and he allows all of these demonic hordes to come out of the abyss. And when they do, they come to bring all kinds of chaos and pain to the people on earth. And they've got thousands of years of pent-up anger where they're trying to get back at God and his people, and they're going to unleash their full fury on the inhabitants of earth. And it's going to be bad. Aren't you glad that your church is raptured? And so now, verse 13, it says, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice speaking from the four horns of the gold altar that stands in the presence of God. And the voice said to the sixth angel who held the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great Euphrates River. Then the four angels who had been prepared for this hour and day and month and year were turned loose to kill one-third of all the people on earth. I heard the size of their army, which was 200 million mounted troops. And in my vision, I saw the horses and the riders sitting on them. The riders wore armor that was fiery red and dark blue and yellow. The horses had heads like lions and fire and smoke and burning sulfur billowed from their mouths. One third of all the people on earth were killed by these three plagues, by the fire and smoke and burning sulfur that came from their mouths of their horses. Their power was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails had heads like snakes with the power to injure people. Now, Here's something that's fascinating. The size of the army is 200 million. When, when the Apostle John wrote this, there, there weren't even 200 million people on planet Earth. And so he's talking about this army of 200 million people. Now, there is only one civilization on planet Earth right now that actually boasts of having an army of 200 million. The Chinese military is said to have 200 million in their military. Some people believe that there will be a coordinated attack from, from China. I don't know if that's the case, but, um, but it is a real possibility. And so as we, as we look at this 200 million person army and, and you read this, the horses that they were riding on were different colors. They're red and blue and yellow and fire and smoke and burning sulfur billowed from their mouths. Can you imagine being a first century person trying to uh, describe a tank or an Apache helicopter, right? But this sounds an awful lot like it may be something like that, right? So this coordinated army effort coming across the Euphrates River to bring destruction and devastation with 200 million people. And in spite of all of this, in spite of the devastation, in spite of having the book of Revelation to read alongside what people are experiencing, this is the people's response. But the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. Can you imagine? 
Can you imagine that? In the face of all of this, there will be people that do not repent. And listen what they refuse to repent from. They continue to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that can neither see, nor hear, nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, or their witchcraft, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So these people continue to abide in this violent, depraved state. And what's interesting is when you, when you read through this, murder is going to be the sin of the day. People will dispose of human life like that. It just, it won't even be a thing. I see you got that. I want it. Boom. I'm going to kill you and get what I want. It's, that's how theft and murder are coupled in these things. And then there's this, this word here, witchcraft. In the Greek, the word witchcraft is actually pharmakia. And pharmakia was used in witchcraft. Sound familiar? Pharmacy, pharmakia. Um, hallucinogenic uh, substances were used during idol worship services in the ancient context. And I believe that there are specific demonic influences that, that happen when people use drugs. You're, you're opening yourself up. You're making yourself receptive to things in the spirit world that you don't want to make yourself open to. And it's destructive and it creates loads of problem. And it's interesting that these people who are drug addicts are part of this group that, that seems unwilling to repent. And you watch people a lot of times um, who are addicted and you see, you're like, you know, if you've never used drugs, I've heard people that I've talked to say often, I don't understand why people don't just quit. And I'm like, so it's slightly more complex than just quitting, right? And, 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 and we, could, we could pick on your sin, right? And say, I don't know why you don't just stop lying. I don't know why you don't just keep checking out porn on the internet. I don't know why you don't just stop, right? There's, there's an endless number of things that we could say, I don't know why you just don't stop. I don't know why you don't just stop worrying, right? It's more complex. There's more layers to it. Not that you can't be free from it, but there is a level of demonic influence that makes it incredibly difficult to break the chains of addiction, Talk to anybody that's gone through it and they will tell you it is painful, it is difficult and, and you wake up in the morning and, and you think, man, I don't want to do this. I don't want to live like this anymore. But there's something that's compelling you and something that's driving you and you just can't seem to stop yourself and you need some help to stop. And that's why we have the ministry of teen challenges because we believe that you need some help stopping the demons that are beating down your door. And I've talked to so many people, those people that live in freedom, they say there was a moment when I knew I was free. There was a moment. Talk to somebody and I, I won't say the name because I, I don't want to embarrass because I didn't ask for permission. But saying I was out raking in the heat a teen challenge, and I was hating it. And God used that moment to break something in me. And I immediately knew I was free. See, God will leverage 
your circumstances, if you will allow him. And there are people in this passage that God is trying to break them so that they can be free. That's what all of this is about, that you maybe, maybe you can hit rock bottom and turn your life to Jesus. That's why we tell people, parents of people who are addicted, stop helping. Your helping is hurting. The reason they stay in addiction for so long is you keep cushioning the fall. Let them fall, let them bang their head, let them hurt, let them experience consequences. That's the most loving thing you can do. And you will feel horrible in the process. But you've got to get to that place where you say, I don't have anything left. I need something beyond me. And we know what the answer to that is. The answer is Jesus. He's the only answer. He's the only answer. And so as we look at this, we're all encouraged and excited and we feel like we're ready to take on our week in Jesus' name, right? No, this is bad. Like, this is bad, right? But, but this is the good news is that there is hope and that you don't have to endure this and the people that you love don't have to endure this. And the reason that I'm preaching this right now is because Jesus is coming soon. And I want you and everybody you know to be ready when the time comes so that you don't have to endure what we just read about in Revelation 8 and 9. I want you to be in a place where you experience the hope of glory, which is Christ returning. You see, because our story looks different, we're going to see the eastern sky split open. And we're going to see the returning Jesus who comes in the clouds and resurrects his church. And, and those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with those who have passed to meet the Lord in the air. And we will rejoice and we will celebrate. And everything that we've hoped for and everything that we've waited for will matter in that moment. And we'll say it was worth it. It was worth it. It was worth it. I'm ready. And I'm telling you guys, at this stage in my life, I have never been more ready for the return of Christ than I am right now. I am so ready for Jesus to come. There is nothing on this earth that I'm waiting to have happen. You know, when I was younger, I remember saying, well, I, I hope that I can get married first before Jesus comes back. I hope that I can have some babies before Jesus comes back. I'd really like to be able to vote before. And, and now I'm like, what? Are you, I'm ready for Jesus to come back. Like, I want to sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and I want to eat, and I don't want to count points, and I don't ever want to gain another pound, and I want to see Jesus, and I want the glory of God to envelop me, and I want to worship, and I want to experience the power of praise that flows out of that, that oneness in Christ that we experience in his presence as we are united as the bride with the groom, and we come together with Christ in a moment and we're united, and all of a sudden, everything that was painful, everything that was difficult, everything that was hopeless is now resurrected in life, and the joy of the Lord is complete in us. That's why I'm excited. That's when I read the book of Revelation. That's why I get juiced up, because I'm like, 
oh, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And when I see the news now and I watch the coronavirus and, and I watch riots and I watch civil unrest and I watch the scripture that says people will become lawless and they will become men of, of lawlessness. And there will be, and when I think about all of the things that I'm seeing unfold and unpacking the news right now, I'm like, ooh, Lord, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. I, I haven't always watched the news thinking that. I've watched the news in the past with this kind of preterist, big word, that everything had already happened that needed to happen in order for Jesus to come back. But as I read Revelation now, I'm telling you that, that kind of everything's already happened that needs to happen. You just need to dig deeper. That's all I'm telling you. You need to dig deeper because you haven't read it all. That's the easy way out, and I, I know there are people smarter, smarter than I am that believe this, but I'm going to tell you, it is the easy way out. It is the lazy way out. There are things in this book about one-third of Bible prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled, and we see it opening up. Since 1948, when Israel became a nation, we have watched this prophetic clock, and it seems to be... You know how when a helicopter starts up, it's that slow kind of woof, woof, woof. And as this starts to go, it's like it keeps getting logarithmically faster, right? There is exponential increase in velocity every turn of that rotor. And that's the way it seems to be happening with Bible prophecy right now. It's just like woof, 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 woof. Because there was no hope for Israel to become a nation again. Do you guys realize that? There was literally no hope. Matter of fact, Hebrew was a dead language. It was not spoken. It was an ancient language. It was not spoken. It was dead. And, and, and Ezekiel prophesied that one day God's people would be reunited and they would speak the one language. Do you know the statistical probability of a dispersed people that had no homeland and no language and no culture that was cohesive for thousands of years coming back together and having a nation and having a unified language that was the same language that was spoken of in the Bible and having Ezekiel call that that would happen as a sign of a kickoff to the end times? What? And you're still on the fence? Or you think that everything happened in AD 70 that needed to happen in order for Jesus to come again? Did you miss that one? Because that was a big one. And that didn't happen until 1948. May the 14th, 1948, boom, this thing happens. And we're watching it continue to go. So I encourage you, this is something that you need to pay attention to. This is something that you need to be aware of. The Bible is rich with prophetic words, speaking of the imminent return of Christ. And if you aren't ready, I encourage you, get your heart ready. Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except through him. He made it so easy to get to God and to get to heaven. He says, it's me. Matter of fact, I'll open the door wide by stretching out my arms on a cross so that you don't have to endure punishment and you can come through my punishment. You can come through me. And people say, oh, that's so narrow. That's so close-minded. It's so easy. 
How easy could it be that God would say, I'm a, look, for those of you that are slow on this stuff, I want you to get it just one way. Just hit right there. Right, that's what I need. If I'm out and I need directions, I don't need somebody's, I hate getting directions from somebody that says, okay, you just go down this way and then you go down there and then you go over there and then you go over there and you'll be there. Or you could go over here and then you could go back over here and then, and then you see the, the, the get and go and you turn left by there and then there's a Wells Fargo bank and you turn right there and then, or you could, I'm like, no, just, just give me one way. Please. I'm, I'm a simple, just, one way. And this is what Jesus did. He says, I'm the way. Come through me. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved from what? Saved from what we just read about. Saved from the torment of hell. And saved to something. You're not just saved from something. It's like the the only alternative is heaven, so. No! You get saved to heaven. You get saved to eternity in the presence of God. I've had people ask me, is heaven boring? I'm like, have you not been following along? It's going to be amazing, so I want to encourage you. I want to pray and if you're here today and you don't know if you're right with God or you want to be right with God or you know that you're not right with God and you want to be, I want to pray for you and I want you to pray with me. If you're watching online and you don't know, I want you to pray with me because I believe that God wants to do something in you. Father God, for each person here who is struggling, I pray, Lord, that you would come and make a shift in them. Right now, if you're praying along with me, it would be appropriate for you to say, God, I believe in who you are. I believe that you died on a cross. I believe that you rose again. And I ask you to forgive me. I want to follow you. Lord, as people are making this decision right now all over, I pray that you would meet with them. I pray that your spirit would connect in them. And I pray that this would be the moment that they know that they are changed forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.